0: Because of my schedule, I often get home in the middle of what we term the afternoon. I think afternoon still falls somewhere between like 12 and 5 p.m., so I'm going to use that as my reference point, which puts my middle somewhere around 3 o'clock. Maybe that's more like two-thirds of the afternoon. Math isn't my strong suit, so I'm going to go ahead and defer to any arguments made as to whether I'm in the half or two-thirds or some other designation of the afternoon. But at that time of day, there are only so many options that will come on the television when I'm first unpacking, uh, preparing for the second half of my return, which is usually about walking my dogs and seeing what's happening for dinner and anticipating when my wife will be returning from work. It's nice to catch some snippets of news, hear a little bit of informative conversation without the requirement of participating as you do when you're involved in a conversation or at work and talking about topics of the news and also because by that time of day here on the uh, Pacific side of the United States, the majority of the East Coast news is breaking in prime time. It's 6 o'clock. And the most developed stories are being broadcast for a viewing audience that is returning home from the 9 to 5 jobs and uh, preparing for dinner time during those conversations. And I feel it's a nice time Ugh, that feels like such an inappropriate word, uh, if only because it doesn't fit as well as something else, and because we've already been talking about time. But it feels like a uh, appropriate segment of the afternoon to check in on the news. And I had been flipping through. And caught a funny clip of an actress named uh, Aaliyah Shawcott. And she was appearing on a uh, program called The Beat with Ari Melber on MSNBC. And they were doing a segment right at the end of his show that I'm not familiar with. Um, It's something called Fallback Friday. This was last week on Friday. Uh, Again... Last week, not being the most helpful designation, so we'll say September 14th <laughs> to give it a timestamp. And this actress was joined by Vox Media's Liz Plank, and they were doing the segment called Fallback Friday, which I'm again not familiar with, but I was able to get a, a sense of its meaning through their descriptions. And I actually got a really uh, good introduction as soon as the uh, first person to respond to the Who Needs to Fall Back prompt by R. E. Melber was Liz Plank. And Liz Plank said that um, There's a little break there. I, uh, <laughs> I had a page reloading. Thanks for your patience. And that was not an unnecessary dramatic pause. It was an accidental dramatic pause. If it's accidental, is it still dramatic? You decide. Liz Plank. Liz Plank said, well, you know what needs to fall back? Toxic masculinity. So there's a new ad that I keep seeing all around New York City and I'm sure it's in other cities across the country. It features Michael Phelps, to which Melbourne then says, therapy helped change his life. And Plank responds, exactly. And we just, we don't talk about the gender therapy gap, which is real. Women are much more likely to actually seek therapy than men. And we often talk about the fact that women have more mental health issues, but women talk about their mental health issues more than men. But men certainly experience a whole wide range of, you know, mental health problems. And for someone like Michael Phelps, an accomplished athlete, what is he, six foot ten, you know, super tall, very masculine, traditionally, you know, according to those standards. For him to open up and say that he is, you know, that he needs help, that therapy changed his life, it really, I think it's a really great message for men to hear. Now, the segment continued with uh, other reasons that things need to fall back. Uh, The actress who was on, Aaliyah Shawcott, proceeded to talk about how there's a uh, a problem with these Instagram um, robots and social media robots that people will follow, and they'll give instructions for people to check out certain feeds or links. But it's not even a real human being, um, and that, that's a whole subject for, uh, <laughs> for another conversation because I feel like there's so much more that could be delved in there with what we are saying and learning about um, automated intelligence and artificial intelligence and automated services and services designed to fulfill our needs without being too human or too mechanical. But it was an idea that these were things that people were paying attention to. And for Liz Plank, her fallback was the, uh, the need for not only toxic masculinity to be addressed, um, but for it to be addressed through a, a positive outlet. That was Michael Phelps talking and sharing how he has talked on this app and this uh, platform called Talkspace. And she was referencing a series of billboards that are going up, as she mentioned, in New York and other major cities. And you can see them at local transportation stations like bus or here in the Bay Area like BART. And it is basically a picture of Michael Phelps saying how he talked and it helped. And it doesn't go much further than that except to provide information on how to contact the app and how to take advantage of the service. According to Plank, this is an opportunity for a conversation and for the uh, continued discussion of masculinity and how it relates to things that both genders need which is a uh, need to talk a need to express and in her comments liz plank points out that there's a need to open up and ask for help. And that is something that should not be tied to masculinity. And if it is tied, that it should be tied in a positive way. And her example is Michael Phelps as a tall, physical, athletic male who's very accomplished and um, is kind of an example of someone who's risen to I would think, the highest heights uh, of his field. And yet also saying that, despite all of that, he's a human being who needs help, and that in no way does or should weaken who he is or make him any less of a man, according to our standards or his. Despite all All the... um, pauses I just had uh, regarding that last clip about Ben Shapiro. What really struck me the most was that I was having trouble finding a direction in his argument and the claims he used to support it. And within that, um, I realized that the more I looked at it, his direction was actually focused on where he was placing the blame for um, the term toxic masculinity and his belief that it is a politically divisive um, term or ideology. And it was then that I saw how he focused on uh, women who he felt were the cause of this problem, like Bette Midler. And he refers to a tweet from her as well as uh, Hillary Clinton. Now, to go back, the reference to Bette Midler's tweet, which is um, just a a grief-stricken tweet following the uh, London terror attack that had occurred um, just a few days before this article was written. But it points out that Midler was also the Beaches star and I wasn't quite sure what the reference was except when I think about it Beaches is a chick flick so maybe the problem is that Bette Midler is a chick or that um, she's the star of a chick flick or that on top of everything she's liberal and a woman and was and is the star of a famous uh, movie that's popular among women. But it was also that the, the next target was Hillary Clinton, who uh, spoke at a Planned Parenthood event, which, along the political spectrum, is generally identified as a left organization or uh, an organization whose policies fall to the left. And at the gala, drinks were served called Toxic Masculinity, um, and that this was uh, also um, kind of part of the atmosphere when she was saying that men are doing everything that they can to roll back the rights and progress we fought so hard for over the last century. And his position from this point is that both Hillary Clinton and Bette Midler see men as the problem because men make war, men commit crimes, men rape, men infuse their aggression into everything he says. And the challenge here is that these are one, overly broad terms, and two, that Some of these terms are true. It's not as common for there to be a case of uh, a woman violently and aggressively uh, raping a man, but there has been and are documented criminal cases that indicate that men have been raped, sometimes by women, but more often by men and that women in a majority of those criminal cases were raped by men. So it's a challenge because while he's making overbroad statements that men are the reason for rape, it is uh, a percentage that fights back uh, against his claim that this is overbroad. Especially because he later uses statistics to make his claim that the lack of men is what causes criminality and other problem issues to exist in black communities where he feels that the high percentage of um, young black men without fathers has contributed to this issue. And so it's this direction to point at who is saying something and label that as the issue, instead of talking about the part that actually makes an idea like toxic masculinity relevant, and that is to define toxic masculinity, and by comparing it to other definitions of masculinity and behavior to give it a classification that's not so broad and not so easy to as broadly vilify or point to as being wrong, incorrect, or simply politically biased. In order to do that, I decided to come back to now the Huffington Post article and to read more by Ryan Douglas about what more men should learn about the difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity. And I felt that by reading Ben Shapiro's national review article, I could better understand the terms that Douglas was referring to, and also where he would, I hoped, would be making comparisons between not only what Shapiro had said, but also what Douglas was now saying in what, based on the headline, appeared to be a refute. So, going back to the introduction, Douglas. Starts with Shapiro National v- Review article, The Toxic Masculinity Schmear. And he goes through the bullet points regarding black communities on absent fathers, a war on masculinity and manhood, and that toxi- toxic masculinity is a concept invented by liberals to emasculate men stripped them of their right to lead families, and turned them into non-entities. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. From here on out, I'd like to be as clear as I can that I am not an expert. I am not a medical professional. I am in no way someone who has um, studied and been certified as having gained any expertise when it comes to human emotions, um, psychology, psychiatry, or anything that falls into understanding human behavior. Other than that, I spent my youth and now my later years as well, writing professionally, and much of that writing required me to observe. And that's my basis for understanding human behavior. I observed people in sporting events and in contests, and I also um, observed people when I interviewed them, um, when I worked for a newspaper and a few other publications. And in each case, I learned to recognize things that I believe told me more than just what their words were saying. And I think the challenge is that there are skills that are gained through education and skills that are gained through experience. And There is no measuring stick when comparing those two uh, routes or those two ways to gain understanding. So I'm not an expert. I simply know what I observe and then I do my best to uh, find information that can inform what parts of what I observed I didn't understand, or what I can understand better with more information. That's a long way around to... I wanted to take a glance around and see what was currently being said about toxic masculinity. And after I did a quick search for the Talkspace app that was referenced by Liz Plank in the CNN segment regarding Michael Phelps and his, not quite advertising, but being part of an advertising campaign that said that he had taken advantage of a service like this and that it helped him. After I pulled that up, I did a search for toxic masculinity and found that there were quite a few articles um one of the most popular regarding hits and searches was uh one that said learning the difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity that was on Huffington Post so i decided to pull that up and as i was reading this article by Ryan Douglas i saw that it quickly referenced within the first sentence a uh, article by Ben Shapiro of the National Review and his article was titled The Toxic Masculinity Smear and it began to to label toxic masculinity as a political term as something that Shapiro refers to as the left's war on masculinity and manhood and I had to stop because I recognized a few things uh, the first was that uh, this was an issue of mental health um, and it was a, a description of behavior and yet it was very clear to see that in many ways this was not actually a, uh, a medical term. This was not actually a behavioral term and if it was, it was now a politicized behavioral term which means even the language that's being used to discuss it and describe it would be um, well layered? No. I'm going to go ahead and say that it would be um, laid in, that it would be carrying a lot of weight and because of that it would always be viewed uh, falling to one side or the other. I got through the first paragraph and realized that before I could continue this uh, Huffington Post article, or potentially anything else, I should see what Ben Shapiro actually had to say in his National Review um, article. This was published back in uh, 2017, and it starts... With a uh, an ad that Mr. Shapiro saw. I mean, a story feature. But so many times when a feature is about someone who's running a program, it, it feels like the feature is just an advertisement. And it was about a uh, a program that was being run. Um, a boot camp, and it was a gentleman who is described as being physical, forty blonde with tattoos, and that his rigorous program um, asks a lot of men, uh, physical torture, mental preparation, um, hiking while holding logs, reciting the poem Invictus, and getting punched in the face, Mm. to which Shapiro points out that he's never been punched in the face, at least not as an adult and he then goes into pointing out that he was bullied but that now that he's married um, with two children of his own um, and he owns several guns he doesn't think about people punching him in the face or punching other people in the face but he admits that when he read about the ad he was curious and had an innate drive for aggression because men Have an innate drive for aggression, and he wanted to check out the website. I'm not sure that men have an innate aggression. I know that some men do, and I know that some men have never displayed that to me. So I can't say that um, all men do. But based on the rest of the uh, the Opinion, the article, the column by Mr. Shapiro. Um, there's a need for this kind of program to exist because men need to continue to have an innate drive for aggression which they can then be shown to channel towards positive or negative um, actions. And the reason behind this is that when men are not allowed to be um, innately aggressive they become emasculated and when they are emasculated they become non-entities that they don't exist. He then draws a distinction, which I can understand, which is that there's a difference between uh, being a gentleman and being a man. But his claim by the end of the article is that this is a society that denies manhood all together, and that it denies men's special protective and creative role in society by categorizing masculinity as mere violence and identifying it all as toxic manhood. Um, And that male aggressive instinct can be good but must be trained not excised. Um, I have difficulty responding to some of it because um, there are lines being drawn which Mr. Shapiro has or has not crossed and which I have and have not crossed. To start with, I'm not married with two children. I'm married with two dogs. I don't own several guns, but I have been punched in the face more times than I'd like to admit, and I did so as an adult um, when I chose to step into a boxing ring and see what the sport was like and learn as much as I could while I was still young enough to uh, give it a try. And I do know that being punched in the face is something that you learn to dislike just as much as you did before it happened and after you've been punched in the face you learn to read when it's going to happen you learn to get out of the way and you learn how to respond I don't think you need to be a person who's been punched in the face in order to know the difference between being a gentleman and not. And I'm not sure that it's necessary for all men to have a trained, innate aggression. I think if I am to consider that maybe men do have an innate aggression, I think it's something that men should be encouraged to recognize, trained, uh, taught, disciplines, those have to come from within. You, I do not believe that it's possible to pin them down on someone and make them do it, but I think that by showing each person the way that it can benefit not only them but others, and then again them in turn that by doing that you can encourage a desire to recognize not only aggression, but all parts of uh, the human character and condition that play pivotal roles and can be very positive and or destructive forces, but that without being recognized can be uh, confusing and disruptive forces that take control of a person when they should be something that a person can, through recognition, make a part of them. And it's not always an easy relationship, but to have a relationship with that instead of simply feeling like it's some out-of-control force that exists but can only be beaten into submission, or um, avoided at all costs. There were a few other themes that I I gleaned from uh, Mr. Shapiro's writing, um, and some of it I wanted to appreciate the idea that it's good for there to be role models, but that the idea that a world with emasculated men will only lead to the chaos that is seen in black communities in which he claims over half of black children grow up with fathers, without fathers, I'm sorry, and that um, this has actually led to more violence than their non-black peers and it's at this point that I realize that this term is going to continue to carry a weight that is divided by politics and policy and that um the more i am looking into this the more i am going to have to seek out the the core key elements that are being addressed and hopefully avoid being pulled to one direction or the other when it comes to uh, identifying with this idea of toxic masculinity, masculinity and talking and keeping it from falling into a a political discussion instead of one that, from my understanding, should be about mental health and about, if nothing else, growth. now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor according to douglas the main flaw in shapiro's argument is a failure to separate masculinity from toxic masculinity he says these are two concepts that have little to do with one another masculinity is real natural and biological toxic masculinity is a performance invented to reinforce it. Douglas goes on to point to toxic masculinity and says that it is built on two fundamental pillars, sexual conquest and violence. These are qualities that men regale as manly and virtuous. If sex and aggression are the measuring sticks of manhood, Douglas then says, it's no wonder that rape education remains a conversation of what women should be doing to not get raped, rather than what men should be doing, which is not raping. He then goes on to point out that we're going to struggle in our attempt to stop sexual behavior if violence and sexuality are still considered primary virtues of manhood. Douglass' argument hinges on the idea that toxic masculinity is a byproduct of male dominance, that a physically stronger gender is, by default, the superior. And this is one that is rooted in uh, our earliest histories, where those attributes meant the difference between eating, living, and fighting for either property or against the outside world. But we now live in a time where that same physical strength is not required to the degree that we once asked of it and needed from it. Instead we've come to view physical strength as something that exists and needs outlets, whether they be positive or negative. In absence of this, men are left to doing the performance side, which is uh, focusing on aspects of appearance, which Douglas keys in on uh, being things like not smiling, flexing and punching things, purposefully deepening his voice, and uh, growing facial hair. I have kind of a deep voice that I can make deeper, and if you've ever seen my picture, I have a mustache, but um, the the deeper voice comes from the fact that uh, I used to drink a lot and probably smoked more than I should, and I would have to say that the mustache was simply something that my wife preferred to my growing a beard and shaving it off every year. I have these things, they're just not a reflection or a demonstration, let alone a performance of my masculinity. In fact, uh, once you get to know me or hear my voice, you'll be surprised that the person that you're looking at sounds as nice as he does. Um, now, Douglas says, of course, men are not required to smile, or should stop punching things or waxing themselves, or even that they should raise their voice so it's higher and lighter. But he is talking about the performance of this when it's unnatural. If you have a natural voice, you're naturally going to sing baritone in a chorus or harmony. If you fall more on the tenor or falsetto, it simply makes sense for you to continue singing at what is a natural pitch for you rather than ask you to try and sing baritone. Therein lies the performance issue. Now, Douglas does point to what he feels are the largest factors, which is that toxic masculinity usually starts with straight white men. And then the way that that sort of Perception is applied, it continues to trickle itself uh, through marginalized groups who uh, see the effect of that behavior on themselves and then turn to use it on the groups that are not aware of it or have not seen how it's employed. Even right now, as I'm recording this. There are a series of outside noises, um, some of which are part of the day-to-day. If it's trash day, or there's construction work that needs to be done, loud, very heavy machines will perform their daily exercise. This can snarl up traffic, and when it does, you'll often hear a large performing engine either from a car or motorcycle, begin revving its engine, either approaching a stop while waiting, or especially once it's gotten through an intersection or whatever was impeding its way, and roars off with loud screeches of burning rubber, the smell of exhaust, and the echo of their engine drifting in the distance. That is more a performance of masculinity, than the day-to-day masculine routine of the heavy lifting of trash and recycling containers and the use of heavy equipment, like a dump truck or a garbage truck. And it's to these issues that Douglas is pointing to his concern. Screeching your tires and roaring your engine or picking up trash cans and performing physical acts of strength are not the only two ways that masculinity is demonstrated, displayed, or defined. There are more than a few people who have recently pointed to skills which men were once known for and no longer are adept at. Because they do not fit the current definitions of masculinity. I know that traits like cleaning, cooking, sewing, and knitting were all skills that men once knew and performed so that they could correctly and completely. Take care of themselves as single, independent, successful men. And the separation of those skills from men is part of the structure in which men and women are raised. And it leads to a different part of the discussion about toxic masculinity. One that is um, taken to its complete length by uh, a writer named Colleen Clemens, who is not only an educator, she is an associate professor of non-Western literature and the director of women's and gender studies, at Cutstown University in Pennsylvania. And as someone who is an instructor and consumes the news, she felt that it was important to address how the term toxic masculinity can be uh, a useful discussion tactic, starting with its vocabulary. She points out that even for someone who teaches both literature and addresses the issues in language that include vocabulary, that toxic masculinity is tricky. She recently wrote a previous column, and because she also tweeted about this subject, she became part of... uh, a nightly news cycle and received a lot of response online regarding what she had to say about toxic masculinity. Now, she starts by pointing out that scientists, through studies, have found that there is little difference between the way male and female, boy and girl, brains develop from the earliest stages of uh, infancy through the stages of childhood into teenage and then later adult. And she points to a book by Lisa Elliott called Pink Brain, Blue Brain. In this, the idea that people of genders act differently is addressed as an issue that derives from rigid societal norms, which have been created around femininity and masculinity. Thank you for your patience as I attempted to say both of those words comfortably, even though syllabically they were a little bit of a tongue twister. But in order to actually unpack toxic masculinity from this point, uh, there's a required level of focus and effort. (laughs) Um, She starts with the idea that um, studies focus on violent behavior perpetuated by men. And that this is a form of gendered behavior that has been associated with toxic masculinity. She then references something that I had not heard of until reading her column, which is called The Good Men Project, which provides their definition of toxic masculinity, something that is a narrow and repressive description of manhood, designating manhood as defined by violence, sex, status, and aggression. It's the cultural idea of manliness where strength is everything while emotions are a weakness. Where sex and brutality are yardsticks by which men are measured, while supposedly feminine traits, which can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual, are the means by which your status as man can be taken away. I think that Clemens makes a strong point when she states that toxic masculinity's discussion is not and should not be focused on saying that men are bad or evil. And she feels that, based on her research, the conversation about toxic masculinity is actually one that was started by men. She references a TED Talk by Jackson Katz, which was held on the subject. She also points to the fact that um, toxic masculinity is a term that was inspired by a, a feminist movement that had sought to address issues of toxic femininity. And those were issues like eating disorders that seek to control one's eating and environment. After this focus on the toxic aspects of femininity that can uh, be present in society and lead to complications and larger issues and focused on how to address them, the project and the focus then uh, was applied to men and addressing different gender, the sheep calls them, gender construct theories to that experience Clemens makes a point of moving from this part of the discussion into a reflection of issues regarding masculinity that have become a byproduct of discussions about mass shootings and targeted shootings that are very prevalent in the news. She points out that a number of these incidents a large percentage I don't have exact numbers but um She does reference that the largest percentage of those who commit these acts are men. And that she doesn't believe, after decades of study, that men are naturally violent, but that there is a culture that can define masculinity with physical power, And this will cause some men and boys to feel like they have failed at being a man. Um, These men and boys are more susceptible to toxic masculinity because the sense of not being equal to, equivalent to, or able to measure up To that standard of being a man Is something that will eat at them Unless they can fill it with something else Clemens believes that this is where The abuse of women and children Affiliation with alt-right groups ISIS or other extreme active organizations Or through the active display of violence whether with a gun or any other group that promises to restore that masculinity. And I can't help thinking back to the men's boot camp that was referenced earlier and the description of a 40-year-old blonde male with tattoos who will punch you in the face. By bringing it back to the classroom, Clemens points to the stakes that exist when talking about toxic masculinity, and that by starting from a place of understanding and a desire to not insult or injure, that students can discuss topics like toxic masculinity even as they are forming their ideas about gender and that in doing so we can provide them with a discussion that shows that there are more ways to be a man or a woman than just what's narrowly defined by either society or other descriptions of gender identity. And that by giving space to express gender in ways that are authentic and safe, We prevent them from becoming susceptible To toxic forms of masculinity Femininity Or Other Incomplete methods To fill the vacuum That these toxicities Attempt to fill But never actually do And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. A article that appeared in. An article that appeared in Psychology Today titled, Is Toxic Masculinity a Valid Concept? was written by Gad Sad, PhD, and his argument in support of toxic masculinity is that it is actually a byproduct of evolution and a process of um, reproducing the species by using the best genetic material available. He points to fiddler crabs and use female rams, and their mating rituals with uh, male rams. And how the decision with regarding who to copulate with is uh, decided after two males brutally beat their heads against each other and the winner gets the girl. He then moves on to say that natural evolution in humans has created a necessary ideal for women regarding men, and it is one in which women sexually and reproductively do not desire, as he refers to them, pear shaped low-status, tepid men possessing high-pitched nasal voices, that instead women desire the toxic masculine male phenotypes that are correlated with testosterone and they are desirous of men who are socially dominant who are strategically risk takers and exhibit behaviors that will allow them to ascend social hierarchy essentially the risk taker is the tall prince and neurosurgeon who wrestles alligators, subdues them on his six-pack abs, yet is sensitive enough to be tamed by the love of a good woman. It is why women ask for the man in the fireman suit when engaging in role-playing instead of the Google C++ programmer, and that James Bond, the epitome of toxic masculinity, does not cry at Taylor Swift concerts, because his archetype is desired by women and envied by men. It's intriguing that he then points to romantic and historical literature in an attempt to state that even these written forms demonstrate that this is a desire that is held around the world and is one that should not be brainwashed out of the minds of men and women on campuses, and that even the attempt to do so will never alter these facts. That instead, the traits of toxic masculinity are precisely the attributes that women find attractive in an ideal mate, and for those purposes... He believes that we should not pathologize masculinity, but instead let us appreciate the ways by which men and women are similar to one another, as well as the important ways in which the two sexes differ. I enjoyed the part of the discussion that moved into literature to support the claims by Sad regarding toxic masculinity. Because it allowed me to move into uh, a search regarding toxic masculinity and literature. And that brought me to a really fun uh, article by Rebe- Rebecca Frumkin, who titled her article The Most Toxic Patriarchs in Literature and references her recent publication uh, called The Come Down which is a novel by her that lampoons toxic masculinity by showing its most extreme examples and results. And she then proceeds to move through literature to reveal examples of toxic masculinity, especially from a patriarchal point of view. And she references... Uh, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez and the character of Jose Arcadio Buendia. And I enjoy her probably best summary line, which says, When your child becomes the fastest mayor fascist mayor of the town you founded, and you don't intervene, you know you've probably failed as a father. She then moves on to Simon Dedalus in A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce, and points to the chronicling of a bumbling, lovable, and down-on-his-luck father, Who becomes increasingly drunk and monstrous Until he's Shouting About his son being a lazy bitch The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison Points to the character of Cholly Breedlove Charlie sets his own house on fire, rapes his daughter, and this is spurred by belief that he has been failed by racist societal system, and his manic awfulness serves to both reveal and conceal his wounds. And then we go a little bit further into history with the example of King Lear from the play King Lear by William Shakespeare. Um, And I like the idea that uh, her description suggests that this story is a lesson in not picking favorites Or at least not picking the wrong favorites And points to the example of asking your children to demonstrate publicly their love for you in order to secure uh, their part of the inheritance they'll receive from you, and the complications that arise when you decide to uh, use your power that way. The examples continue into Made for Love by Alyssa Nutting and the character of Hazel's father. And the way in which, when he's not Hazel about her past, he's canoodling with Diane in a way that is, as she puts it, truly a bummer. And the final example would be Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace and the character of Dr. James Orrin in Condenza, who essentially neglects his children for his filmmaking career, um and proceeds to ignore older brothers Hal and Oren, while younger brother Mario lusts for his father's attention and acts as a key grip and best boy in all of his dad's productions. Sadly, Dr. James ends his life by putting his head in a microwave, leaving his children to wonder what, if anything, he meant to them. While many of these are the most extreme forms of toxic patriarchy and toxic masculinity in literature, they do point out that the counter to Sad's claim that toxic masculinity is desirable as a fantasy that women continue to want by using these men who in literature, display traits that are not desirable, let alone a fantasy, for the women who share these stories with them. The point of talking about toxic masculinity goes back to the CNN segment called Fallback, in which one of the guests said that something that needs to fall back is the idea of toxic masculinity and that a way that she felt that this was occurring and could continue to occur was by looking at the positive example demonstrated by Michael Phelps and the talk therapy app that he was now promoting She focused on the idea that because of what this app offered, it was something that required more than just a cursory glance. That because the app is discreet, it provides an outlet that is private and structured by you using the time that you can create to engage with it. But more importantly is the idea that there is a need for men to talk and for outlets for them to talk. I can say personally that this is something that I discovered when I was actually forced to talk. It gives me no pride to say that I have been arrested twice when I was younger for drinking and driving, and that that led to my no longer drinking, but that the consequences of my drinking and driving and being arrested for it was that I had to um, complete a series of training and treatment programs, and after my second arrest, one of those programs required a period of time where I received classroom instruction at a uh, credentialed and fairly well-respected treatment center that was a product of my court-ordered uh, restoration agreement. And then in addition to the classroom instruction, there was also a component known as group where you were required to attend a class room that was a group setting usually no more than 10 to 12 people It was an hour and a half long, and in order to receive credit, you had to be willing to participate, at least to a portion of the discussion, and to engage with the other people who were there. In many of these classes, the number of men to women was often eight or nine to, eight or nine men to two or three women. And within the first 10 minutes of the first meeting that I attended, it was clear to see that men were the least likely to engage. There were those who had already been through more than one group class and had found that the best way to deal with that problem was to simply talk in an attempt to make the time go faster. I considered the same thing until I realized that growing up in my early 20s, when I had struggled with emotional strain, I had sought out treatment and attempt to talk to other people find someone who I could talk to, to try to understand the people that were in my life, what they were doing, and if I was wrong, to think that it was creating problems for me, and that some of the actions that I was engaging in were also creating problems for me, and that those were things that I was unable to access, either due to time, money, health insurance, and what seemed to be just another factor in one area or another that prevented me from getting, or at least even accessing, that kind of help to see if it was something I needed. And yet, after my second arrest and the requirement to attend these group classes, I realized that I'd been given something that I had been searching for all this time. And that if I really wanted to do something with the time that I was required to be there, then the best thing I could do was to take advantage of where I was and to talk. And I didn't like it, and it wasn't fun, but... I started every class where I began speaking with the idea that this is a place where I needed to be, because these were things that I needed to talk about, if only to hear myself speak them out loud, and in doing so, judge in that moment whether what I was saying was right or wrong, or if I was as off track as I feared, or more on track than I actually believed, but that until I actually expressed those ideas, fears, and concerns verbally, I had no way of knowing what they meant, and until I could hear the responses from others, I had no way to gauge or measure them, uh, except for myself. So in this group setting, I became aware that I had an opportunity to talk and to engage in a way that I knew would lead to positive growth for me. And it reminded me of something that um, someone I knew who had begun attending a treatment group Uh, for his own reasons, said simply that men need to talk and that conditioning them not to leads them to live inside their own heads and manifest um, and kind of feed some of their worst qualities, but that by putting them in a group or in a setting where a discussion can occur with one other person or more that ideas that are challenging that questions that are confusing when spoken aloud with others not only have a shared understanding but can offer a range of experience an opportunity for someone who's farther down the road to tell you what they learned and uh Hopefully through their experience Answer the questions that you're facing And provide some guidance But that can only occur When the person and the people in the group See that value And are willing to embrace it And to Use the environment they're in In order to bring out the the benefit that occurs Through talking, the claim in the CNN clip that toxic masculinity needs to fall back is that men talking about fears and concerns is something that has often been regulated to feminine or non-masculine behavior. That men don't talk. That Like the uh, description in the article by Dr. Sad, James Bond doesn't cry or lash out emotionally. He is stoic, reserved, uh, brusque even, and by being so, he is not only desirable, but a model of masculinity. By defining masculinity in terms that are harmful to the man displaying them, we embrace a darker side of a character trait that is not positive and raise it up as though to make it something that should be. And I believe that is the place where toxic masculinity can put in, put down roots because by taking an idea that is discomforting and destructive and raising it up as something that is desirable and important, we change a dynamic from supportive and constructive and move it into a realm that. ...is nothing but destructive. And that by allowing men to talk with each other... ...about these challenges and concerns... ...and showing them that this discussion is a way for them to achieve understanding... ...we can eliminate the, the fertile soil that normally allows toxic masculinity to take roots, and to begin twisting fundamental ideas of men, manhood, and masculinity. I believe men need to talk. I believe, as a man, that talking has provided some of the best instruction that I can ever receive from others, or give to myself, and that without that instruction, I don't believe I would be in a place where I could comfortably talk about how talking helped me, and how I was able to use talking to, in my mind, strengthen the ideals that I believe are the most important to me, And to my masculinity And I believe that supporting men like Michael Phelps Who are willing to make public statements Of support For men who talk Is a great start And I also believe that By talking about it We can begin to undo Some of the harm That silence has helped to create. Thank you again for listening to Storytelling with Seth. Whether you're listening on Anchor, Radio Public, Breaker, iOS, Google Play, or one of the many other platforms available. I appreciate you taking the time to listen and if you're one of those generous supporters, thank you. If you didn't know, you can support my podcast. While you're listening to this recording, feel free to take a look for the link that says to support me. Should be a really simple little button. And if you're having any trouble, don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. And I'll make sure that I'll do my best to help. But you're listening. Your continued support is what makes these podcasts possible, and I couldn't do it without you. So, thank you again, not only for listening, but for your generous support, and for all the different platforms that you listen to Storytelling with Seth. I look forward to sharing my next story with you soon.